This is lesson 14 in our series on uh, Daniel, and we're going to wrap up the last little bit of chapter 9 and then do chapter 10. Where we left off last week, we were talking about the scripture in Daniel chapter 9 verse 27 that talks about the Antichrist making a firm covenant with the many for one week. Uh, Now we know that a week is a set of seven years and we talked last week about what it means to be the many. Uh, I think most scholars and most uh, footnotes in your Bibles and will explain the many as being the nation of of Jews. And we took a look at scripture last week at where that phrase is used elsewhere in scripture and found that without exception really, the phrase is used either in Old Testament prophecy of the people that the Messiah is coming to save or it is used in the New Testament to talk about the people that Christ came to save through his act of, of uh, crucifixion and resurrection. So from that, we would have to conclude that the many is a broader term and refers to more people than just the Jewish nation. It sounds like it applies to all of us that Jesus came to save. So we went further, looked at, at the Hebrew meaning of the exact words that are translated the many and found that they also, in addition to meaning you know lots of things, also had meanings associated with leadership of people as in a prince or some a great man that officer that kind of a meaning so our interpret at least my interpretation would be that the antichrist is going to come back and make a covenant with the leaders of many nations um, and that many people in addition to the jews will be party to this covenant now that covenant kicks off the last set of seven years, that last week. So it, the, the verse says, he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week, but in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. Now the middle of the week would obviously be three and a half years. So three and a half years into this covenant, the Antichrist is going to stop sacrifice and grain offerings. Well, that's significant in the fact that there aren't any sacrifice and grain offerings happening now. That means that a temple will presumably have to be rebuilt sometime between now and the making of that covenant, uh, or at least during that covenant period, and that the Levitical sacrifices will resume, where there are sacrifices of bulls and rams and goats and grain offerings and peace offerings and wave offerings. And that kind of raises the question, is this uh, a literal interpretation? Should we take this as literal offerings or is this some kind of symbolic offering? Uh, It's really not clear necessarily in the scripture, but I would have to read. I'd read this literally and, and for several reasons. Number one, if it was a figurative offering, I'm not sure it would refer to a grain offering separate from a sacrifice. They're, they're all, you know, offerings to the Lord. And I think secondly, 
that if the Dome of the Rock was not on the temple site, and, and if something happened to it somehow, and the Jews were allowed to rebuild a temple, I believe that Levitical sacrifices would be reinstituted just immediately. I think it could happen overnight. I, I think that it's not necessarily a statement of religion or religious fervor as much as it would be a statement of culture. I, I think if you uh, look at Israelites today, their, their Jewish heritage is... For many of them, not as much about religion as it is about maintaining their identity and culture. So I, I think that it's very possible, even in modern days, for if a temple is rebuilt, for the sacrifices to be restarted. Well, this verse says that after three and a half years, the Antichrist is going to stop those sacrifices and grain offerings. And uh, this could be the point at which he destroys the, the sanctuary. So let's go back and look. This three and a half years is a significant time period. And it sheds a little light on a prophecy we studied earlier in Daniel in chapter 7. Go back and look at Daniel chapter 7, verse 25 through 27. Again, it's speaking about the Antichrist. And it says, he will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the highest one. And he will intend to make alterations in times and in law. And they, that is the saints, will be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. That adds up to three and a half years. If a time is a year, times is two years, and half a time is half a year, that's one plus two is three, three and a half years. So there's a second place in Daniel that confirms that this is a three and a half year period in which the saints are going to be given into the hands of the Antichrist. Now the question is, is that the first three and a half years? The second three and a half years? The first half starts with the covenant of the Antichrist with the many. It ends, the first half ends, or is marked by the Antichrist stopping the sacrifices and grain offerings. Then the last three and a half years start, and that's the time during which the Antichrist will wear down the saints of the highest winds, intend to make alterations in times and law, and the saints will be given into the Antichrist's power for three and a half years. Now we know that's the last three and a half years of the last seven years of existence as we know it because of the following verses, the verses in Daniel chapter 7, verses 26 and 27. Because at the end of that three and a half years, it says, the court will sit for judgment and his, that's the Antichrist, dominion will be taken away, annihilated, and destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one, and his kingdom, that is Jesus' kingdom, will be an everlasting kingdom, and all the dominions will serve and obey him. So that tells us that the the three and a half years during which the saints are under the um, cruel dominion of the Antichrist, that three and a half years ends with the second coming of Christ and the creation of his kingdom on earth. 
So what happens next? Let's look at, look at the rest of Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. So after he puts a stop to sacrifice and grain offerings, then it says, And on the wing of abomination will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. It's kind of hard language to follow. And so you've got to pick it apart. The one who makes desolate would be the Antichrist. Okay, that, that's who he is. He is, he, and it says that he comes on the wing of an abomination, of abominations. And various translations will translate that somewhat differently. I think that that means that he will come in espousing, um, encouraging, being everything that is abominable to God. These are abominations in the sight of God. And they're not necessarily going to be abominations in the sight of people at that time, as we know. Even today, abominations occur all the time. And people um, protect them, condone them, even glorify them. So it may not look like abominations to most people But in the eyes of God, the Antichrist is coming on the wing of abominations. Now, some scholars take this in a little bit more literal sense, a little bit differently. And the way that they interpret it is they say, well, when the Antichrist comes, he's going to set himself up as God in the sanctuary, possibly in the Holy of Holies. We've read prophecies where he He's going to desecrate the Holy of Holies. And we understand that that would be in the temple. Some scholars believe that that act of desecration of the Holy of Holies and of setting himself up as God to be worshipped is the abomination talked about in this scripture in Daniel. And that the wing of abomination has to do with the physical location in the temple, a wing of the temple in which the abomination occurs. It's, it's very similar to the wing um, where Jesus, where Satan took Jesus up when he was tempting him and showed him the, all the, the whole kingdoms of the earth. This is, they take this as a very literal interpretation of the physical building of the temple. Either way, the point is that that the, he he will ha- make and create and cause abominations. He is one who causes desolation, widespread desolation. And then the verse says, "This will be allowed to happen until a complete destruction is poured out on him, and that this destruction of the Antichrist is a destruction that is already decreed." In heaven, and we know from our study in, in chapter seven and from elsewhere that when the ancient of at the end of this three and a half years during a, which is the very last part of the seventh last seven years at the very end of time kind of time as we know it now, the ancient of days and the court are going to sit in judgment, and the antichrist is going to be completely stripped of power, annihilated forever. To further understand this, I think we should take a look at what Jesus says about this passage. Any time Jesus has something to say 
about a passage we're studying, we're going to pay a lot of attention to it. And Jesus talked about this exact verse in Matthew chapter 24, verses 15 through 27. This is also recorded in Mark chapter 13, verses 14 through 23. They're pretty much identical um, stories, identical translations of, of, this, of the same passage. So I'm going to read from Matthew chapter 24, verse 15. Therefore, says Jesus, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, sitting in the holy place, let the reader understand. So right there, that pinpoints this exact verse in Daniel. And Jesus is saying, when you see the Antichrist standing in the holy place, that I would take to mean the temple, the holy of holies of the temple, Jesus says, Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Whoever is on the housetop must not go down to get the things out that are in his house. Whoever is in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. But pray that your flight will not be in the winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation. And that's where this term comes. A great tribulation is the term that that's what Jesus calls this period of time. Then there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, behold, here is the Christ or There he is. Do not believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Behold, I have told you in advance. So if they say to you, Behold, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. Or, Behold, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe them. For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Jesus says that when the Antichrist enters the temple, I I presume the temple, the holy place, the holy of holies, and sets himself up as God, that marks the beginning of the great tribulation. That would be this last half we know from, from the verse in Daniel where it says that that occurs in the middle of the last week, that Three and a half years into the last seven years, he will come in on the wing of abominations and he will be allowed to operate for that last three and a half years. Jesus says that last three and a half years is really literally going to be hell on earth and hope it doesn't happen in the winter. And when you see that happen, it will start immediately. It's really an awesome and fearsome image. But the other thing that's important for us today is that Jesus says people will arise who claim to be Christ, come already back for the second time, or people will arise who claim to be prophets. You see, in those last three and a half years, the Antichrist will be persecuting Jews and Christians alike, every believer or professed believer, believer in name, everyone who calls themselves by the name of the living God, every believer. 
those, I think that this starts the great apostasy because those who are just believers in name only will fall away immediately. They will say, never mind, it's not that important, I can worship, you know, whoever you want me to worship, just don't kill me. However, for the ones who are truly believers in their heart, it is proven the world over in, in Eastern Bloc, in Asian countries, wherever believers of Christ are persecuted for their faith, where their lives are threatened, they dig in their heels. And faith flourishes in the hearts of true believers during time of persecution. And so Satan will not be able to get to those believers and turn them away from Christ by threatening their physical body. It won't work with them. So he has to come at them in a different way. And the way he's going to try to get them to fall away is to create Christ. People who look like the Messiah, who look like Christ, who look good, and who say to them, here I am, I'm the one you've been worshiping, come follow me. And they will come away. They will, he, they will fool many people because their roots aren't deep enough in the scripture and in the spirit to discern that these are false Christs. But if you have studied the scripture, and especially these scriptures, Jesus says, I'm telling you now, I'm warning you, don't follow those false messiahs. Don't follow those false prophets. You will not, it's not me. Because when I come back next time, there's going to be no question about it. Every single person on the face of the earth will know I have returned. Because I'm coming back in wrath. People will be fleeing to the caves, it says in the Bible, when the day of the Lord comes. When this second coming occurs, it, Jesus says it will be like lightning flashing from all the way from one side of the world to the other. There will be no question whatsoever that Jesus has returned. He will have one foot standing on one mountain, one foot standing on another mountain. The earth will shake and split. It will be an unmistakable day and we read last week it will be a day like no other where there is light at night that it will be a very unusual day when the mountains melt we're ready for chapter 10 so if we turn over to chapter 10 verse 1 this is the introduction to the last vision that is recorded in scripture by Daniel In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a message was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belteshazzar. And the message was true and one of great conflict. But he understood the message and had an understanding of the vision. The third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, would have been three years after this last vision that we just read. So this is, um, that one would have occurred in the first year of Darius the Mede, which would have been the first year of King Cyrus. And now we're in the third year of King Cyrus. So we're in about, we're in 536 BC. And it's now been 72 years since Daniel was carried into captivity. Even if he was extremely young, 17 years old, when, when he was taken into captivity, he would be nearly 90 years old now. So he's very old. And he's seeing the 
the vision that is is one of the la- last and greatest ones that that he records and he records them in chapters 11 and 12 and, and they form the end of the book of Daniel chapter 10 is an introduction that that explains how these visions came about. The key part in this first verse is the phrase about this being a vision about of one of great conflict, a message of great conflict. The Hebrew behind these words is a little strange. It's really just two words, and it is interpreted in a number of ways. The, the two words, the first word is tzapah, which means literally a mass of persons or figurative things, especially those regularly organized for war, such as an army, or by implication, a campaign. It can mean hardship or worship. It can mean appointed time, army, battle, company, host, service, soldiers waiting upon war or warfare, according to Strong's. So here you have a sense, that's why it's interpreted here as conflict. It has the sense of a great military campaign, not just a battle. The word implies campaign, more, uh, uh, more of a longer plan, a mission, a crusade, a, some kind of war with a purpose. And this is one of the verses where people, you know, look and say, well, we're going to have a World War III, at least one more World War, because that's how, how great this conflict is, is seen by some interpreters. And the reason they see it as such a great conflict is because the, the second Hebrew word in the phrase, and that is the word gadol. Gadol means literally great in any sense, but it also means elder or older. It also means insolent. Isn't that interesting? It means exceeding or a man of great matter or a greatness, high, long, loud, mighty, more, much, noble, proud thing. So you take these two words together and what you get is a campaign. The first, the first word is essentially the noun. It describes the, the, the military campaign, the army, the host, whatever it is. And the second word raises that to the nth degree. It says it's not just any old army or any old campaign. It's the big one. And, and so I would render, perhaps render this uh, as a great military campaign or a great struggle between powers. The King James Version uh, translates this phrase as the time appointed was long. The New American Standard Bible translated it as one of great conflict. Other translations render the phrase a great task involved great suffering. It, there's a, quite a broad range of possible interpretations. But, but I think if you take it in the context of the, follow, the message that follows, then calling it a great military campaign or a great struggle between powers makes the most sense. So then Daniel continues in verse 2. In those days, I, Daniel, had been mourning for three entire weeks. I did not eat any tasty food, nor did meat or wine enter my mouth, nor did I use any ointment at all until the entire three weeks was completed. On the twenty-fourth day of the first month, while I was by the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, there was a certain man dressed in linen, whose waist was girded with a belt of pure gold. Daniel says he had been in mourning for three weeks, that's twenty-one days, 
he says this ended on the, this vision occurred on the 24th day. So he started his fast or his mourning um, on day three of the first month of the year. The fact that it's a modified fast, it's not the whole sackcloth and ashes routine, but it's more, you know, I, I still got dressed every morning, but I didn't eat, you know, it's kind of like a, a Christian fasting for Lent. It's like I didn't eat dessert and I didn't put on perfume. It, apparently, Daniel had a need during this period of time to continue to function in the in the world in some way, um, perhaps in a, in a, still in a royal capacity. And the the fact that he had not started the fast until the third day of the first month implies that it was still occurring the New Year festival. This was the first month of the New Year, and it was traditional to have a New Year festival that was very important. This first month is not just on the Hebrew calendar. It is on other ancient cal- calendars as well. And so apparently this was celebrated there where where in Babylon or wherever wherever Daniel was staying at, at this particular time then he as soon as he could he started his his fast his modified fast and he fasted for 3 weeks well during this time passover occurred and passover occurred on the 14th day of the first month and continued for it's a 7 day festival during which you or a 7 day occurrence during which you Eat only unleavened bread. So there's a certain amount of essentially fasting from yeast. And it's certainly a time of prayer and reflection. And that would end at the end of seven days. So um, on the 21st day of the month, that that would have ended. So Passover has, has just ended when this vision occurs. And Daniel is still fasting and praying. So we don't know... If this fasting and praying had, or mourning it calls it, and praying had, had occurred as part of his normal Passover observance, or whether he was uh, doing something personal where he had petitioned the Lord. I, I kind of think, based on the context, that he was petitioning the Lord for further understanding before he died of these visions that he had seen, these apocalyptic end-time visions that he had seen. At the end of three weeks, Daniel sees this vision, and it's, he continues recording it in verse 6. His body, he's talking about this angel that he saw, his body was also like beryl. His face had the appearance of lightning. His eyes were like flaming torches. His arms and feet like the gleam of polished bronze, and the sound of his words were like the sound of a tumult. Now I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, while the men who were with me did not see the vision. Nevertheless, a great dread fell on them, and they ran away to hide themselves. The description of this being that Daniel saw is very similar to the description of Christ in the first chapter of Revelation. And many scholars actually believe this was Christ who came, excuse me, came and appeared to Daniel. I really don't think that it was. I think it was an angel because uh, of later actions that this being takes and statements that this being makes a, l- makes a little later in this chapter. So we'll talk about those. But for now I'm going to call this, this vision an angel. And if... If you look at 
what this angel looks like. This is an angel revealed in his real power and glory. Throughout the Bible, you do see angels interacting with men, and usually the angels are have have somehow cloaked or or ma- kind of masked themselves in a more human form. And even Abraham entertained angels, and it wasn't until they, you know, he'd been talking to him for a little while that he even realized they were angels and that they were on their way to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. So it is entirely possible for an angel to look just like an ordinary person. But it is also entirely possible for an angel to appear in all of his terrible and holy glory. That happened to Balaam on the ass. And it happened here in Daniel. It happens a number of places in scriptures. And these are not warm and fuzzy angels. This is not your typical picture of the female angel with great big fluffy wings. That that image of an angel is just not scriptural. Angels don't have wings. And they're not female. They're, or they don't appear as females. And And you can just, it's a nice fuzzy little picture that we have developed of angels, guardian angels. But... As far as scripture goes, you can take that image and put it in the same pile as the Easter Bunny and Santa Claus. It's it's not scriptural. If you want to know what an angel looks like, read this passage in Daniel. An angel is a great and glorious and terrible and holy and powerful being with real power. uh, One of the other things that strikes me about this passage is the fact that Daniel was the only person who saw the angel. The others could not see the angel. They sensed that something was happening. They sensed something and it scared the living daylights out of them and they ran away. But they could not see the angel because the angel was not in his you know, human physical form. He was appearing as he really is in the spirit world. Daniel was seeing this angel with eyes of the Spirit. And we need to be looking and asking the Lord to help us develop eyes of the Spirit also. There's a terrific story back in 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 8 through 23. That's another illustration of this exact thing. Where back at that time, the king of Aram was at war with the king of Israel. And the king of Aram had a military conference with his close advisors, and they agreed to rendezvous at a certain point. Well, immediately, Elisha, the prophet of God, told the king of Israel that the king of Aram was going to rendezvous at a certain point. That news got back to the king of Aram, and he figures he's got a traitor in his midst, because certainly Elisha was not present. Elisha is on the side of the Israelites. So, and, and so the king of Aram calls all his military advisors together. He locks them in a room. He says, we're not leaving here till we find out who the traitor is. And they say, king, it is not us. We're not doing it. We can't help it. It's because that dead gum of prophet, Elisha, knows what you say in your bedroom. And so the king of Aram says, well, there's one way to solve that. We'll just... Get rid of the prophet Elisha. And Elisha at the time was in a town called Dothan. And the king of Aram sends an entire army 
with chariots and horses and troops, an entire army to kill, sole purpose, to kill the prophet Elisha. Well, Elisha has a sidekick. And Elisha and his sidekick are sitting there. He, Elisha's kind of guy, he lives in caves and stuff. He just, he's, he's a John the Baptist kind of prophet. So he's and his sidekick are sitting there and they see the armies of the king of Aram coming across the hill. They're coming to get Elisha. Well, the sidekick goes berserk. He says, what are we going to do? Oh my gosh, we're in so much trouble. Run away. And Elisha looks at him like he's nuts. He says, what are you talking about? Can't you see the armies of the Lord camped around us? And at that moment, the eyes of the side, the spiritual eyes of the sidekick were opened. And he saw all around him encamped the armies of the Lord. When the armies of, when the, armies of the king of Aram came closer, Elisha prayed. He said, Lord, strike them blind. And the Lord struck them blind. And when they came close to Elisha, he said, hey, you're, you're in the wrong place. I, I know who, who you're looking for, and I can take you to him. Just let me lead you to him, because you're in the wrong town entirely. So he takes a hold of these leaders of the armies of the king of Aram, who are now blind, And he leads them directly into Samaria in the presence and surrounded by the armies of the king of Israel. And then the Lord opens their eyes. They see that they're surrounded and they know they're doomed. The king of Israel cuts his eyes over to to Elisha and says, "Uh, what do I do now? What do I do with these guys? Should I kill them? And Elisha says, no, don't kill them. If, they, if you took them prisoner of war, would you kill them? No, just feed them and send them on their way. Tell them not to do this anymore. And that's exactly what happened. The king of Israel gave, gave him a feast, set, set his enemies down at a table, fed them, sent them on their way back to their homeland and told them never to bother Israel again. And that is exactly what happened. The, the king, the Aramaic armies never attacked Israel again. And and there's a couple of points to this story. One obviously is you must see with spiritual eyes to see these spiritual forces, both of good and of evil. And and you need to be aware and ask the Lord to open your spiritual eyes. It's not necessarily something that's just going to happen. It's something to ask for. And the second thing to notice about this story, and the thing that most people miss, is that even though Elisha could see and was very aware of the armies of the Lord camped round about him, it was, he did not call the armies of the Lord to his defense. He prayed to God. And he asked God to strike his enemies blind. We are not the ones to do the fighting. We are not the ones to lead the armies of the Lord. The Lord leads the armies of the Lord. Our role is to pray. Our role is to pray for help from the Lord and to cast ourselves on his mercy and place ourselves in his care. That's exactly what Elisha did. So now the question comes, well... 
that was just Old Testament stuff. You know, they didn't have the Holy Spirit like we have. You know, Pentecost. Holy Spirit did not come and indwell men until Pentecost. In Pentecost, Jesus said the Holy Spirit will come and imbue you with power. So what did the guys in the Old Testament have? Maybe this was it. Maybe, you know, they had eyes of the Spirit and they could see the armies of the Lord. And and maybe that discontinued. You know, there's people that think that. I don't think that viewpoint is scriptural. I think scripture is very clear that this type of spiritual vision is applicable to Christians today. Uh, One place that you see that is in Ephesians chapter 6 verses 10 through 18. This is Paul speaking. A final word, be strong with the Lord's mighty power. Put on all of God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against all strategies and tricks of the devil. For we are not fighting against people made of flesh and blood, but against the evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against those mighty powers of darkness who rule this world, and against wicked spirits in the heavenly realms. Use every piece of God's armor to resist the enemy in the time of evil, so that after the battle you will still be standing firm. Stand your ground, putting on the sturdy belt of truth and the body armor of God's righteousness. For shoes, put on the peace that comes from the good news, so that you will be fully prepared. In every battle you will need faith as your shield to stop the fiery arrows aimed at you by Satan. Put on salvation as your helmet and take the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Pray at all times and on every occasion in the power of the Holy Spirit. Stay alert and be persistent in your prayers for all Christians everywhere. I think that's pretty clear that we need to be seeing with the eyes of the Spirit. We need to be covered with the armor of God, with his protection, with the weapons that he gives us. This is a wonderful verse to, to meditate on and think about, internalize, what, ask God, what does this mean for me? The second thing that we want to focus on in this passage in Daniel is that the blindness and the deafness of the people who were with Daniel didn't stop with Old Testament times either. It continued into today, into the post-Christ period. This, this, uh, there's a passage in a very famous passage in Acts chapter 9 verses 3 through 8 that records the conversion of Saul or his name was later changed to Paul, the great, great apostle. As he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and it will be told to you what you must do. The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. The people who were traveling with Saul, they they could hear the voice. I don't really think they understood the voice. I think they heard sound, and but they didn't understand what was being said, and they certainly could not see 
with spiritual eyes. They did not have spiritual eyes. They, their spiritual eyes were closed. So this is very relevant to us today. In fact, we need to understand that the, the spiritual realities around us are more relevant than the physical ones that we do tend to look at. Let's continue in Daniel chapter 10, verse 8. So I was left alone, and after all his friends ran away, and saw this great vision, Daniel said, yet no strength was left in me, for my natural color turned a deathly pallor, and I retained no strength. But I heard the sound of his words, and as soon as I heard the sound of his words, I fell into a deep sleep on my face, with my face on the ground. This deep sleep reminds me of the deep sleep that Abraham fell into. It's a very, when, when God was doing the covenant with him, we read this last week, it's a very deep spirit-induced sleep in which, in which the, the spirit operates internally without interference from our minds. And Daniel, however, he, could, he says he could hear the sound of the words of this being, but he couldn't really make out the words. He, remember he said that the voice of this angel was like the sound of a tumult. It's kind of like trying to listen to a waterfall and understand what it's saying. That's, that's what Daniel was going through here. Then behold, verse 10, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O oh, Daniel, man of high esteem, Understand the words I am about to tell you, and stand upright, for I have now been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up, trembling. Then he said to me, Do not be afraid, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart on understanding this and on humbling yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to your words. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me for twenty-one days, And behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left there with the kings of Persia. Ah, this is amazing. For one thing, the the people who really, really badly want this first being at the beginning of the chapter to be Christ say that at the first of the chapter it's Christ, but here in chapter 10 when a hand touches Daniel and sets him on his hands and knees and starts talking to him, that that's a different different being and that that being is an angel I think that's a stretch I think uh, Daniel would have made that clear if that was the case it seems to me if you just read the plain English of the story that it's the same guy talking to him I I do think that he he is gradually kind of toning his appearance down Daniel is nearly 90 years old and this is quite traumatic to be faced with a, a fiery and flashing and terrible angel. The way that we know it's an angel and not Christ is from this exact passage. If it, if it was Christ, number one, he wouldn't have been sent. Christ it, it was the sender. And secondly, he would not have had to battle the king of Persia, and the king of Persia would not have prevailed against him for 21 days. That's you know, that's just not going to be the way it is with Christ. It, that makes a whole lot more sense if this being who is talking to Daniel is an angel. And in fact, he refers to Michael, the archangel Michael, as coming to help him in his battle during the last 21 days. And he calls Michael 
a chief prince. That kind of gives us a little insight into this prince of the kingdom of Persia that the angel was battling for 21 days. You see, the king of Persia at that time was Cyrus. Do you think this angel was fighting Cyrus for 21 days? No. The angel is fighting a spiritual being, not a physical being. The angel is fighting, the, the angel that came to Daniel is fighting the angel of the kingdom of Persia. The spiritual reality. You see, if you, you can think of these physical kingdoms that we see as just kind of the feet, the, just the, the lowest part of the real spiritual reality. Of the struggles that are going on. There are there is a spiritual prince of Persia. An angel of Persia. And you can tell from this passage. That this angel of Persia was fighting against. The angel of, that was sent from God. Therefore ergo. The angel of the kingdom of Persia is evil. Certainly at this time. Uh, uh, scripture doesn't say where, whether he continues to be evil. Um, you would presume so, but it, it doesn't say that. But it, I would presume that the angel of the kingdom of Persia is continuing to fight against God even into this, this day and age. Wow. Do you ever think that, that God answers your prayer by literally sending someone to you, an angel to you? When you pray... For healing, do you think that God is actually going to send someone or an angel to lay their hand on you and pray for you? Do you, when you ask for understanding, do you think that someone is going to come and talk to you? That God is sending an angel to explain it to you? This passage gives us insight into the purpose of Daniel's morning fasting and praying. It says that he set his heart on understanding this mystery. Daniel has all these years still just puzzled in his mind over the, the visions that God has given him. And he wants to understand what is going on. So God sent an angel to tell him. It's also interesting to think that Satan arrayed such forces against Daniel getting this message. This message must be hugely important. And it is, because this message reveals Satan for who he is. It reveals the Antichrist. It reveals the roots of the Antichrist. It is an unbelievably accurate prophecy. And it reveals the power of God and the fight between good and and evil and Satan would do anything to keep Daniel from getting this message because you know what happens when Daniel gets this message he writes it down and it comes down to those of us in the end times who need to know who need this information desperately we need to be aware of who the Antichrist is what he looks like so that we can stand against him so we can resist him and Satan is going to do everything he can to keep that message from getting through to Daniel. And he's going to do everything he can to keep that message from getting through to us. Daniel verse 13. Now I have come to give you an understanding 
of what will happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision pertains to the days yet future. And when he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face toward the ground and became speechless. And behold, one who resembled a human being was touching my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spoke and said to him who was standing before me, O my Lord, as a result of the vision, anguish has come upon me, and I have retained no strength. For how can such a servant of my Lord touch with, talk with someone like me? As for me, there remains just now no strength in me, nor has any breath been left in me. Then this one with human appearance touched me again and strengthened me. And he said, O oh man of high esteem, do not be afraid. Peace be with you. Take courage and be courageous. Now as soon as he spoke to me, I received strength and said, May my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. So here you see, you know, Daniel is just face down to the ground. He cannot bear to look at this glorious angel. And, and here you begin to see the angel referred to as being more resembling a human being. I, I, you kind of get the sense that he's, he's beginning to tone his appearance down so that Daniel can stand it because Daniel is just not going to be able to take in this message unless this angel kind of tones down his terrible and, and holy appearance. Then the angel said, Do you understand why I came to you? But I shall now return to fight against the prince of Persia. So I am going forth, and behold, the prince of Greece is about to come. However, I will, let, I will tell you what is inscribed in the writing of truth. Yet there is no one who stands firmly with me against these forces except Michael, your prince. In the first year of Darius the Mede, I arose to be an encouragement and a protection for him. And now I will tell you the truth. This is such a great passage because it's, it gives us just this little glimpse into the life, a lot, you know, a day in the life of an angel. It's, it's terrific because this angel is obviously distraught. He's, he's obviously really got his mind back at that fight with the angel of the kingdom of Persia where he's left Michael, the archangel Michael, is back there kind of holding the fort for him and he really needs to get back and help Michael with this fight. And he says, you know, i got to get back because the king of, of Greece is fixing to show up to fight against us as well. And we know from history that that happened. We know that, the, the, that Greece was the next nation to arise through, through Alexander the Great. And this is where you, you begin to understand that the physical realities, these kings and conquerors, are nothing but a reflection of the real battle that is taking place in the spirit world. And this angel is, is he's got to get back to this battle. And he's saying, Daniel, you know, I am here to tell you the message, but you need to listen fast. You need to sit down and shut up and listen to me because I don't have time. I need to get back to what I was doing. But I am here because you are highly esteemed. You are important, and it's important that you understand this message. The other little piece that might have flown by you in this verse is that it calls Michael the, your prince, or in other words, Michael the archangel is the prince of the Hebrews, the angel looking over and responsible for the welfare of the Jews. Very interesting. And that will be an interesting thing to remember when, when we get to Revelation and we read some more about the role of Michael.
the last thing that we need to, to look at in, in chapter 9 is some passages out of Scripture that talk about the fact that this angel refers to the writing of truth. And it, it has to do with the fact that history has already been written. You see in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 3 through 13, it talks about how we speak wisdom among those who are mature. A wisdom, however, not of this age nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery. The hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. The wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Just as it is written, things which the eye has not seen and ear has not heard. And which have not entered the heart of man. All that God has prepared for those who love him. For to us, God revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man, except the spirit of a man who is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows, except the Spirit of God. Now we have received, not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know things freely given us by God. Which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. This, this passage talks about the fact that history has been written. It is known in advance. And we, through the Spirit that God gives us, that we have inherited and been given freely by God, through the Holy Spirit, we have been given to understand things hidden since the beginning of the world. In fact, Jesus said this in Matthew 13, 34 and 35. All these things Jesus spoke to the crowds in parables, and he did not speak to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the foundation of the world. And finally, the chap- 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 16. The prophets who told us this was coming asked a lot of questions about this gift of life God was preparing. The Messiah's spirit let them in on some of it, that the Messiah would experience suffering followed by glory. They clamored to know who and when. All they were told was that they were serving you. That, that's us, the people of the future, the believers of the future. You who by orders from heaven have now heard for yourselves through the Holy Spirit the message of those prophecies fulfilled. Do you realize how fortunate you are? Angels would have given anything to be in on this. So roll up your sleeves, put your mind in gear, be totally ready to receive the gift that's coming when Jesus arrives the second time. Don't lazily slip back into those old grooves of evil, doing just what you feel like doing. You didn't know any better then. You do now. As obedient children, let yourselves be pulled into a way of life shaped by God's life. A life energetic and blazing with holiness. God said, I am holy. You be holy. We're going to stop there with the thought that we are being given information 
and through the Spirit being given an understanding that the prophets of old would have given anything to know, that the angels themselves would have given anything to know. Even Jesus said, I am revealing to you things hidden since the foundation of the world, and it would be well if we would pay attention.